Rick Warren said, your spiritual family is even more important than your physical family because it will last forever. Our families on earth are wonderful gifts from God, but they're temporary and fragile, often broken by divorce, distance, growing old, and inevitably death. With that said, I think we all know there are a few things as profoundly influential in our lives as family. Whether that influence is positive or negative, the effects of family and our upbringing reverberate throughout the rest of our lives. Of course, that doesn't mean uh, we can justifiably uh, you know, blame our family life for every one of our personal problems or poor choices, although people certainly try to do that all the time. Nor should we necessarily credit family for every one of our successes in life, especially for those who have overcome a difficult family upbringing. Because the truth is, God gives certain gifts and abilities and character traits to each one of us individually, which means we're individually responsible for what we do with those gifts and abilities and character traits, regardless of how we were raised or what our family relationships are like. However, it's undeniable that the dynamics within a family, the the degree to which a person uh, is or is not nurtured or cared for or encouraged within that family, right? The Uh, The existence of or absence of accountability between family members, the the use of or lack of discipline, uh, the amount of or lack of affirmation that one receives as a member of that family. All those kinds of family dynamics have tremendous influence in our lives one way or the other. In fact, in a fairly recent Barna study, nearly two-thirds of Americans polled said that family was the number one factor in their lives in determining their identity. Being an American was second, and their religious faith was ranked third. Clearly, the majority of people, at least in this country, carry the effects of their family influences with them throughout their lives to one degree or another, to the point that our lives are often shaped by those relationships, which can be wonderful as long as your family experience is largely a healthy one. And yet, for some people, the opposite is true because, of course, we live in a broken world, and, and nowhere does that brokenness show up more than it does in our families, at least in this society. And so along comes Jesus, who not only came to show us the way to the next life, but he also came to show us how to live in this one. And so he invited us to become members of his spiritual family, which turns out is so vitally important and formative in shaping who we become that it actually transcends even our biological family. At one point, when Jesus was speaking to a crowd of people, Matthew says that Jesus' mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him, his biological family. But he replied to the man who told him, who's my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother, Matthew 27, or 12, uh, 47 through 50. Look, look, that wasn't a slight against his biological family in any way, shape, or form. It was simply a true expression of the greater importance of being a member of the family of God. Okay, in the first century Hebrew culture, the biological family reigned supreme in importance. And Jesus actually challenged that notion by making it clear that the family of God was to take precedence even over the biological family. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, 
He cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26. Now, uh, the word hating, or the phrase to hate in that verse, is an ancient uh, Semitic expression in the Hebrew. It literally meant to love less. The point being, Jesus wanted his followers to understand that, yes, of course, you're to love your biological family. He wasn't suggesting otherwise, and neither am I, by the way. However, being a part of his family must take priority even over our biological families if we're going to be able to fulfill his calling in our lives. That's a little hard for some of us to accept in our culture. Joseph Hellerman, he's an author and New Testament scholar, said it this way. He said, Jesus' relationship priorities help us understand that the church, the family of God, is not here to serve the interests of our family, biological family, its preferences, desires, and needs. Rather, our families are here to serve the family of God. I'm just going to read that again. Jesus' relationship priorities help us understand that the church, the family of God, is not here to serve the interests of our family, its preferences, desires, and needs. Rather, our families are here to serve the family of God. Again, the reason for that is not because Jesus wants us to experience less good things from, from our biological families. No, it's because he wants us to experience all of the good things available to us as members of the family of God which couldn't be any more relevant, by the way, for a group of people throughout history than it is for the American church today, because in many instances, if we're being honest, we've made our biological families our God. We worship the family in American church culture today, the biological family in many cases. Often I think we, we consider our family at home to be of utmost more important than our family at church, the family of God which is actually a mistake according to Jesus because that's not what he taught and that's not how he lived. He didn't just lay his life down for his biological mother and father and brothers. No, he he gave his life for all who were, for all who would ever be a part of the family of God, for the church. You understand this? This is the model that we're supposed to be following. We live our lives and we give our lives for our brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers in Christ And certainly that can and should and does include our biological family members. But we have to stop thinking about the church. The family of God is somehow second in priority to our family at home. It's not what Jesus taught and it's not what he modeled in his own life. Because as as long as you consider the church a place that you go to rather than a family that you belong to, you're not only missing out on the fullness of God's plan for your life, but you're actually not fulfilling his will for your life because God's will for your life is the church. The church is what he gave his life for, and the church is what we are supposed to give our lives for. The apostle John wrote, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. First John three sixteen. that's a direct reference to the family of God, to the church. You understand, this is our mandate This is the will of God for every single Christian to devote our lives to him by serving each other, which means the family of God becomes our first priority in this life. And to understand what that looks like, he gave us examples all throughout scripture and none better than the one we're looking at today. 
and again next week in the book of Joshua as we continue our sermon series working our way through that book. So uh, my, my prayer this week in preparing this message has been that this story in Joshua would not only inform us in the way we understand the church, the family of God, but, but that it would transform us in the way that we actually live our lives as members of the family of God. Because that's the only way the church can do what it's called to do. By the way, that's also the only way you can do what you've been called to do, what, what you, how you can become what you're called to become, you see, because this family of God is meant to be much more than just a part of your life. It is meant to shape your life, to influence every aspect of who you are, to nurture your growth in Christ as we live out the gospel together until being a member of God's family becomes the sum total of your very identity. And it is then and only then that your God-given destiny in this life can be discovered and fulfilled. Do you understand? You cannot find or fulfill your purpose in Christ in this life outside of his church. You cannot. You cannot find or fulfill your purpose in Christ in this life outside of his church because the church is God's plan for this world, which means the church is his plan for your life. And you understand there's no backup plan. The church is it. And so it's vital that we not only understand that, of course, but also that we understand what that means then going forward as members of this family of God, what that looks like practically for our everyday lives. Because just like all families are tested at times, this family's no exception, right? We will be tested at times throughout this journey of life together. We have been many times already. So how we respond to one another along the way will make all the difference in the world. First of all, when it comes to our health as a family, and consequently then our health as individuals, right? People who are raised in healthy families tend to be healthier people. But listen, there's far more to this than just our individual health and happiness as members of God's family. This story is about really far more than, than being a, a simple commentary on how we should treat each other in the church. In fact, if that's all that we talk about today, then we've missed the real point of this message because ultimately this story is about our fidelity to and our unity in Jesus Christ as members of his church, specifically his local church. That's, that's the much bigger and much more important picture here that we must keep in view as we go through this chapter over the next two weeks because, listen, you can be a part of any religious or secular uh, organization, for that matter, outside of the church and be treated quite well by other people in that organization. In fact, it's, it's terribly sad how many people I've known who have left jobs, vocational jobs in the church and went into the secular workforce and, and their first comment was how well they're treated in their secular jobs. You don't have to become a member of the church to be treated well by other people. And although you certainly should be treated well in the church of all places, the purpose of that kind of relational health isn't just to make us feel good. No, the purpose of healthy relationships within the family of God is to foster unity among us. Why? So that we can effectively accomplish all that God has set before us to accomplish. Because it requires all of us working together. There are no lone rangers in the church. Right? We can only minister to the world around us effectively, and we can only bring glory to God as his family effectively if the family's healthy. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. By what? If you have love for one another. 
John 13, 35. In other words, if our relationships within the family of God are not healthy, then we cannot do what he's called us to do. We cannot be witnesses to the rest of the world if we cannot love each other in here. You can't go out and tell someone about the love of Christ if you can't love your brother in Christ. I've said it many times before. Our testimony, according to Jesus, our testimony is at the mercy of our unity our love for one another. Nothing could be more important. And so in our story this morning and next week, we see the family of God being tested through what ends up being a tremendous misunderstanding to the point that thousands of them could have died. And yet the way they navigate through that misunderstanding and the reasons given for why they confront and deal with the issue the way that they do, which you'll see, that's what we want to pay attention to as we work through this chapter. So as we go, I'm going to point out several imperatives in order for the church to remain healthy and to remain the priority in our lives that it should be. And these are imperatives that are demonstrated for us by God's people throughout the chapter. So we're going to cover about half of them today through the first half or so of the chapter, chapter 22, and then we'll finish the list in the other half of the chapter next week. So let's turn there together to Joshua chapter 22, and we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 5. So Joshua chapter 22 Uh, verses 1 through 5. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You've kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I've commanded you. You've not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them, Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So uh, back in Numbers 32, Moses says to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, otherwise known as the Transjordanian tribes, that if they will cross over the Jordan with the rest of Israel and fight with them in order to subdue the land west of the Jordan, then they, the Transjordanian tribes, will be given the land of Gilead, the land east of the Jordan, as their own inheritance. And so they responded to that offer by Moses with the resounding commitment to do just that. And then later in Joshua 1, from verse 12 through the end of that chapter, the time comes for these two and a half tribes to make good on that promise. And so Joshua commands them to leave their homes east of the Jordan, where they already were, to leave their wives, just to be clear, to leave their children Right? To leave their belongings, their homes, and cross over the Jordan to fight for the land that is to be given to the rest of Israel. And that's exactly what they do. And so here in chapter 22, now that the fighting has ended and the land west of the Jordan has been secured, Joshua, using almost identical language from the commitment of the Transjordanian tribes back in chapter 1, he now commends, he, not commands, he commends, he praises these two and a half tribes for honoring their commitment, for doing exactly what they said they would do, and for obeying both Moses and Joshua. And as a result, in verse 4, Joshua says, you can now turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. In other words, hey, fellas, you can go home. It's a really, really big deal 
and a big day for the Transjordanian tribes because the men of those tribes haven't just been gone for a few weeks or even a few months fighting a handful of battles with Joshua for the rest of Israel. No, when Joshua says to them in verse 3, you've not forsaken your brothers these many days, that was seven years. Seven years. Their wives were without husbands. Seven years their children are without fathers. Seven years their families and their homes and their land had to go without the men who would lead them and nurture them and protect them. While they risked their lives, fighting enemies on all sides, vastly outnumbered, they laid siege to the most heavily fortified cities in Canaan. They were attacked by literal giants and kings and hordes of enemy fighters with horses and chariots across the land through toil and strife and bloodshed for seven long, hard years. They fought for land they would never live in or reap from. Why in the world would they do that? Why would they leave their wives and children and homes to fight for a place that would ultimately belong to someone else? It's because of what they did belong to. You see, more than a location, more than a particular homeland, even more than their biological families, these two and a half tribes understood that they belonged to the family of God more than anything else. And so that took priority over everything else. And yet even at that, Joshua knew their commitment to the family of God was only as strong as their commitment to God himself. So he says to them, be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Okay, This one verse is the foundational statement of not only the rest of this chapter, but it's the foundational statement for the very life of the family of God throughout history right up to and including today. It's the great commandment of Deuteronomy 6.5, and of course, it's what Jesus described as the first and great commandment in Matthew 22.37, because the legitimacy of every single thing that we ever do or say as members of the family of God, all of it hinges upon this one foundational command. Jesus said, you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Okay, this is the linchpin that holds the family of God together. Our fidelity to and our unity in Christ is what binds us together and it is what every other aspect of this life as members of the family of God naturally flows out of. Okay, I'm just telling you, if we can't get this part right, then we can't get anything else right. If we don't love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind, then we'll never be able to love each other like we're supposed to like we're commanded to, because our love for one another is born out of a love for Jesus Christ, which of course is born out of his love for us. Okay, so we're going to move quickly now through the first half of a list of imperatives that we find in this chapter in order for the family of God to be healthy and fruitful in our calling to serve him by serving one another. But we need to understand this part first, that all this teaching, it all comes back to verse 5. To love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cling to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Because if we don't have that, then we don't have anything. So with that in mind, in these same five verses, Joshua demonstrates a pattern 
And actually, we find the pattern throughout the Bible. Anytime a member of God's family is about to impress upon another member of that family some essential teaching or some important instruction that they must follow, right before Joshua very very directly, by the way, very forcefully commands them to love and follow God in verse 5, he takes the time first to encourage them. He commends them before he commands them. He says, you've kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice and all that I've commanded you. You've not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. These are heartfelt words of gratitude and genuine affection by Joshua for these Transjordanian tribesmen, which we would do well to learn from, okay? Because being members of the family of God means we encourage one another. We commend one another before we command one another. It's not manipulation, by the way. That's not being passive-aggressive. Actually, it's, it's a biblical pattern. The Apostle Paul spends three chapters in 1 Thessalonians commending or encouraging the church there before he ever begins to command or instruct them. We find the Apostles Peter and John doing the same thing in their writings, and even Jesus in Revelation 2 encourages the member of, uh, members of his family before commanding them or teaching them. He commends them. He encourages them. It's the difference between encouraging fidelity and faithfulness among God's people and exacting fidelity or faithfulness among God's people. Put another way, it's the difference between obedience to God's word that is motivated by love within the family of God or obedience to God's word that is motivated by legalism by the family of God, within the family of God. I'll just tell you, a large portion of my generation who grew up in the church has rebelled against the church in our culture, left the church because of what we perceived as legalism. It's saying to someone, I want you to do this because I said so, rather than I want you to do this because I love you. And as a result, much of a generation of people has walked away from the church. Legalism, which by the way is nothing more than manipulation, that may work for a season, but not over, not over the long haul. Okay, Jesus did what he did for us because of his great love for us. And if that isn't the overwhelming message that people are getting from us, then we cannot expect them to follow our teaching. Listen, if you want to be critical of someone in the church, there's something you don't like about what they're doing or how they're doing it or how something's being run, and you lead with that, you won't get very far. If you can't show people that you love them first, that you care for them first, and that is actually what's motivating you to bring correction if need be or an instruction. Nobody's interested. Nobody will listen to what you have to say. If you want someone to listen to what you have to say, they need to know that you actually care about them first. Otherwise, why would they bother to listen? There are plenty of people who want to tell me what to do. Even in this, just the position of a pastor of a small local church, I get it constantly. If I don't think somebody actually cares about me, it it goes through one ear and out the other. I am not interested in what you have to say. I'm only listening to people who I know love me and have what's best for me in mind. Okay? As the family of God, that's a lesson we all need to take uh, to heart. We need to make it a habit to encourage before we instruct to commend before we command. You'll get much farther that way. Let's keep reading verses six through nine.
So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession by, uh, beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. So Joshua expresses his love for the people and sends them on their way. But it's important to note here that he didn't just tell the people that he loved them. He actually showed them that he loved them. He sent them on their way with tremendous wealth and belongings. From their conquest, Joshua went to great lengths to bless these Transjordanian tribes because that's what the family of God does. We bless one another, all right? We, we can talk about love all day long. And of course, as Christians, we should. I, I'm a firm believer that people need to be told they're loved because far too many people never hear it on a regular basis. But look, if we don't back that talk up with action, all that talk will amount to nothing. Can you imagine if Joshua had said, hey guys, seven years, whew, time's really flown by. Some of you, you know, John, you lost an arm there. Sorry, pal. I mean, you guys really, you really sacrificed. Bye. I'll pray for you. Good luck. <laughs> it's good to tell people that we love them, but we need to show them that we love them. If Joshua had said all that he said to these two and a half tribes and then sent them away empty-handed after seven years of fighting for the tribes west of the Jordan, after seven years away from their homes and families, after seven years risking their own lives to secure land for someone else, how loved do you think they would have felt? Knowing their families back there have to be hurting, I mean, a sacrifice to not have their fathers and husbands all that time. I mean, how seriously would have they, they have taken one word out of Joshua's mouth if he sent them home empty-handed. Do you understand it's the same for us today? I mean, people will only invest as deeply into the family of God as they are loved by the family of God. People will only invest as deeply into upcountry church as they are loved by upcountry church. That's a fact. There's simply no substitute for the love that we actually express to each other through our actions. And so our love for one another has to go beyond words alone. And make no mistake about it, that's going to cost you something. It cost Joshua and the tribes west of the Jordan much wealth, very much livestock and silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and much clothing. I am sure the tribes in the west would have loved to have kept all that for themselves, but love goes beyond words. Love costs us something. Love is a commitment. Love is a sacrifice. Love is, is an action. Love is costly. So look, if being a part of the church, the local church, if being a member of the family of God isn't costing you anything, it may be time to ask yourself, am I really loving people the way I'm supposed to? The way that Jesus tells me to. The way that being a member of the family of God demands. Because love is our highest calling and it's, it's meant to cost us our very lives. Okay, if you're not serving other people, then you're not loving other people. If you're not giving your time and your money and your talent and your passion to the family of God, then you're not loving the family of God. If there isn't a measurable 
cost associated with your involvement in the local church, then you're not loving his church. Because loving God's people goes far beyond just words. Loving each other means laying our lives down for one another. That's what it means to bless other people. It costs us everything. Let's keep going. Verses 10 through 20. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it, said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. What? Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you've committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, for which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel." But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. So uh, up to this point, Everyone was getting along famously. Joshua encourages the Transjordanian tribes. Then he blesses them tremendously and sends them on their way back home. But just before they cross the Jordan back into the land promised to them on the eastern side, they stop and build an altar of imposing size, according to verse 10. As soon as the rest of the people of Israel hear about it, they gather to make war against the two and a half tribes. What an amazing turn of events. They just finished fighting for each other for seven long, hard years, and now they're about to fight against each other because of an altar. What's the big deal? Well, back in Leviticus chapter 17, verses 8 and 9, the people of Israel were strictly forbidden to sacrifice offerings to God anywhere other than the tabernacle. In other words, their worship was to be centralized as they gathered at the tabernacle together. There was to be one altar, one faith, one family of God. So the building of this altar appeared to be a turning away by the Transjordanian tribes from the law of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the, and the rest of the family of God, which the, the, the temple was meant to bring them together. So this is a direct affront to the unity among the family of God. And then in Deuteronomy 13, 12 through 15, God's people are instructed to strike down with the sword all the inhabitants of any town that turn away from God. So this move by the tribes west of the Jordan to make war against the tribes east of the Jordan 
actually had nothing to do with them suddenly hating the eastern tribes. You understand, it had everything to do with their love and devotion to God and his word. It goes back to verse 5 for their motivation, because this move by the eastern tribes appeared to those in the west as nothing short of apostasy. This looked to them like a direct attack on the purity of God's word and the purity of his worship. And so they're simply obeying his word on the matter by preparing for war. That's how much they love God. They're willing to now go to war with the very people they just spent seven years fighting with side by side. John Calvin, referring to this passage, once wrote, Here then we have an illustrious display of piety, teaching us that if we see the pure worship of God corrupted, we must be strenuous to the utmost of our ability in vindicating it. You see, this is actually... It's an astounding picture of the commitment of the people of God to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. This is the ultimate picture of the family of God holding one another accountable to his word. And so just before mounting their attack, they send a delegation led by Phineas to question the eastern tribes and hopefully avoid an all-out holy war with their own people. And the fact that they sent Phineas, by the way, is significant because Phineas was the same man who stopped a plague that was sent by God on the people of Israel back in Numbers 25 when they began worshiping other gods and prostituting themselves with the Moabites. It was a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites and promised to kill many more until Phineas, the high priest's son, in his zeal for the Lord, takes a spear and he runs into the tent of one of the chief's sons who had brought a Moabite princess home with him, flaunting it in the face of his fellow Israelites. And so while these two are in the tent having intimate relations, Phineas, a very young man at the time, runs into this chief's son's tent and sends his spear right through the middle of both their bodies, killing them, of course, and immediately ending the plague. Now you can be sure of one thing. Everyone in Israel after that knew exactly who Phineas was. And they knew what he'd done. Everyone knew about this incident where he stopped the plague and how he did it. In fact, it's even referred to directly in verse 17 here that we just read in Joshua as the sin at Peor. It's a reference to this story. And so the fact that Phineas was the one leading the delegation to the eastern tribes was no coincidence. And it was certain to strike fear into their hearts the moment he showed up. And that was certainly the intention to let the eastern tribes know how serious the western tribes were about this apparent breach of God's word. And yet with all of that in mind, the fact that they sent a delegation first before sending their army speaks volumes about their desire to end this conflict peacefully with their brothers, which is exactly what holding each other accountable is supposed to look like then and now. Being a member of the family of God means we hold one another accountable, which ultimately is a great act of love, both for God and for his people, because the purpose of holding one another accountable is always restoration. It's bringing someone who is outside of God's will back into fellowship with God and his family. So before we ever bring discipline or consequences for someone else's behavior, the biblical pattern is to confront the offending person first, to make sure first that we have an accurate understanding of what's been done so we don't pick up the phone and call our friends and talk about what somebody said or what somebody did. You go to that person first 
And if that doesn't work through a delegation of fellow believers, we give an opportunity for repentance if needed and restoration. It's only after that, all of that has been rejected, that there's discipline. It's a pattern, again, throughout the Bible. In Matthew 18, 15 through 17, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Paul said, warn a divisive person once, warn him twice, and then have nothing more to do with him. It's the same pattern. In other words, when a, family of, uh, a member of the family of God is acting outside of God's will, before you boot him out, before you confront him with the whole congregation, first you confront him alone. If that doesn't work, then with a delegation of believers, you find out the truth about what's happened and you give him an opportunity for repentance and restoration. That's always the point. It's only after a refusal to listen, even to the congregation, that he's cut off from the family of God. This is what Jesus is describing. It's excommunication from the church. But you understand the motivation even behind church discipline and excommunication is always the restoration of the one who's brought an offense against God and his people. It's for the person to feel the full weight of the church turning away so that they'll repent and come back. It's what was happening here with the confrontation between the Western and Eastern tribes. In fact, so disposed toward peace and restoration are Joshua and the Western tribes. They make an offer to the Eastern tribes in verse 19 that if they're unable to serve God east of the Jordan, then come over and take land among us on the Western side. We'll make room for you where the tabernacle is and you can make your sacrifices there where you ought to rather than remain in the East of the Jordan and continue sinning against God. And I'm telling you, just as Joshua and the rest of Israel had an obligation to hold the Transjordanian tribes to account for their actions according to God's word, we have an obligation today to hold one another within the family of God accountable to God's word. The Apostle Paul said, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? 1 Corinthians 5.12. In other words, when it comes to the world, we as Christians, we're not to judge anybody. We're not, to, we're not to hold the world accountable for being the world. We're most certainly to be honest with the world about sin and God's grace and the need for repentance, but we don't judge the world. Listen, we don't discipline the world. No, we're just supposed to love the world by telling them the truth, but inside the church, within the family of God, we're absolutely called by God's word to hold one another accountable to God's word which is one of the most loving things, by the way, you could ever do for your brother or sister in Christ, and it's also one of the most unpopular teachings in all of Scripture within the church today. Nobody in our culture, including Christians, wants to be told what they should or shouldn't do. And yet to see your brother or sister in Christ living contrary to the Word of God and yet remaining silent out of a fear of offending them that is actually the most destructive and grotesque form of pride and disobedience that we could ever level against another member of the family of God. I'm telling you, we, we need to learn to swallow our pride, get over our fear of offending others, and start telling our brothers and sisters in Christ the truth about sin and repentance. In fact, I would far rather offend a brother with the truth than to comfort him with a lie. Lies may make us feel good, 
but they keep us in bondage. The truth, no matter how hard it may be for us to hear, the, the truth sets us free. I love how Old Testament scholar Dale Ralph Davis puts it. He says, how the church needs to recover such a passionate piety, such an infatuation for the true worship of God, such an anxiety when covenant people appear to wander from the path. The church then should hold members under vigilant, I did not say vicious, discipline. So let me just ask you today, when you see a brother or sister in Christ living contrary to the word of God, does it make you indignant or indifferent? Does it make you anxious or apathetic? Does it spur you to seek the truth, to restore your brother or sister for the sake of the unity among us? Or are you content to look the other way and go about your business? Listen, we cannot afford to turn a blind eye to sin in the church. We must be willing to do the hard work of holding each other accountable, not so that people will be controlled by the church, but that we might be set free because we're surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who will love us enough to tell us the truth. That's what, that's what loving the family of God really looks like. And that's our mandate. That's the will of God for every single Christian to devote our lives to him by serving each other. And serving each other means encouraging one another. It means blessing one another. And it means holding one another accountable. You understand, that's the only way the church will ever be able to do what it's called to do. And that's also the only way you will ever be able to do what you're called to do. Because this family of God, it, it's meant to be much more than just a part of your life. It's meant to shape your life, to influence every aspect of who you are, to nurture your growth in Christ as we live out the gospel together until being a member of God's family becomes the sum total of your very identity. And it is then and only then that your God-given destiny in this life can be discovered and fulfilled. There's, there's no other way. Again, you, you cannot find or fulfill your purpose in Christ in this life outside of his church. You cannot. You won't find it in your career. You won't find it in your friends. You won't even find it in your family at home. Apart from Christ, there's, there's only one place that your destiny and calling can be discovered and fulfilled in this life, and that is as an active member of the family of God.